Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. Wait Courtney cleared his throat for silence. Gentlemen, last Tuesday I spent two hours with the Governor. We discussed the recent developments across the Tugela. Two weeks ago, the British agent at the Zulu King's Kraal was recalled. Recalled is perhaps the wrong word. The King offered to smear him with honey and tie him over an anthill, an offer that Her Britannic Majesty's agent declined with thanks. Shortly thereafter, he packed his bags and made for the border. Since then, Ketchaweo has collected all his herds which were grazing near the Tugela and driven them into the north. He has commanded a buffalo hunt, for which he has decided he will need all his impis, 20,000 spears. This hunt is to be held along the banks of the Tugela, where the last buffalo was seen 10 years ago, and he has ordered that all wounded game is to be followed across the border. There was a sigh then, a murmur from them. They all knew that this was the traditional Zulu declaration of war. Sir Bartle Frere met Ketchaweo's Indunas a week ago. He has given them an ultimatum. They have until January the 11th to disband the impies and take the Queen's agent back into Zululand. In the event that Ketchaweo disregards the ultimatum, Lord Chelmsford is to command a punitive column of regulars and militia. The force is being assembled now and will leave Peter Maritzburg within the next 10 days. He is to cross the river at Rourke's Drift and engage the impies before they break out. It is intended to end this constant threat to our border and break the Zulu nation forever as a military power. So, in When the Lion Feeds, Wilbur Smith sets the scene for the outbreak of the Anglo-Zulu War, which is the subject of our podcast today, uh, as it's, as we know, the great inciting incident of When the Lion Feeds, when the Courtney family uh, are sort of broken into different directions. And we're incredibly lucky today to be joined to talk about it uh, by Professor Saul David. Um, Saul David is a historian and broadcaster, uh, professor of military history at the University of Buckingham, uh, and a podcast veteran uh, presenting uh, his own podcast called Battleground Ukraine, which he co-hosts with Patrick Bishop. Uh, he's also written uh, a huge number of history books, including Victoria's Wars, SBS, Devil Dogs, uh, relevant to today, uh, a book called Military Blunders, uh, and particularly relevant today, a book called Zulu, um, which the Literary Review said was superb, brilliant, magisterial, must now be regarded as the definitive history of the Zulu War. Um, so here to give us the definitive history of the Zulu War, we have Saul David. Saul, welcome. Thanks so much for asking me on. And you have something in common with Will because you've actually also written a novel uh, where the protagonist is at the Battle of Rock's Drift. Is that right? I have indeed. Uh, Zulu Hearts. Um, and the character, I think, you know, is he is he Wilbur Smith type? I suppose he is in a way. Um, I created this kind of mixed, mixed uh, uh, heritage British army officer who finds himself at Rock's Drift. And I suppose I was able to use, as you've already mentioned, my 
uh, my knowledge of the battle and indeed of the Zulu wars more generally um, from Zulu, my book Zulu, to sort of set the historical framework. But I do remember being given what I felt was very good advice by my <laughs> editor, fiction editor at the time. He said, Saul, I know you're a historian, but you've got to let go of the history, really. It's just about a story. So I think creating this completely fictional character as my main protagonist really was the key to allowing myself or forcing myself to let go of the history. Was um, was Wilbur's work itself kind of an influence on that? I mean, were you familiar, are you familiar with Wilbur's work? It was. I think it was probably the first time I read any account of the uh, of the Battle of Islanwana and Rourke Strip, the battles, the twin battles, as we'll no doubt discuss, taking place on the same day. When I was um, 16 at boarding school in Yorkshire, uh, it was all the rage to read Wilbur Smith, and we we piled through as many uh, books as we could. But of course, the 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 story set in the Zulu War had enormous influence on me. So, what do you think it is about really good historical fiction that leads people to then want to find out about the historical truth behind it all? Well, I think fiction draws you in because uh, first and foremost, it has to be a great story. But when historical fiction is done well, as it is, of course, by Wilbur Smith. It's because you get a proper sense of place, uh, but you also get a sense of time. You can't write good historical fiction without knowing the history. I think the trick is not to have too much of the history in there. But of course, in Wilbur's case, born in South Africa, uh, lived there for many, many years. And of course, he can depict the place, the the climates, the you know the the, the wildlife. You very much get a a, a, a proper sense of of the setting. Uh, but as well as the history. History, of course, is so important to South Africa that it's almost impossible to live there without getting a, you know, a, a, a kind of heavy dose of of how everyone got there. And you've got all these different influences, the Dutch, the English, the African, uh, and that extraordinary melting pot. And, and, and of course, it's the history, in my view, is at its most interesting in the 19th century, which is 19th and early 20th century, which is chiefly, of course, where certainly the early, early Wilbur Smith books were set. Just to answer a simple question, and you kind of raised it, who are the Zulu and how did they get there? And when did they get there? And where did they get? Because, I mean, that's sort of the whole, the whole issue of as well, who has the primal ownership of the land is so fundamental in South African history and politics. And as you say, so much debated. So what's your take on, on the Zulus? Well, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the Zulus are really moving into the position that we, we assume is their heartland and certainly the, the, the key to the story of the Zulu war, that is uh, what you would call now KwaZulu-Natal, but Zululand as it was known then. And they moved to that location, um, or at least they're present in that location at the end of the 16th century. But to put that in context, the Dutch are coming up from the Cape at around the same time. So you can see the the uh, uh, the Zulus, and of course, part of the broader Bantu nations. Uh, they are a particular subset of the Bantu, the Nguni uh, clan. And but relatively small, certainly small in the uh, late 16th century, and even towards the end of the 18th century, when we get on to the really interesting part of the story, when Shaka is born, and of course, as you know, he really creates what becomes the Zulu Empire, it's still relatively small. You've just got about 400 uh, uh, people in the clan 
And of course, it's going to grow incredibly quickly, mainly through military conquest over the next 40 or 50 years to a nation of 20 or 30,000 strong uh, and covering an enormous area of land. So were they were they herders? I mean, were they like as well like the Maasai, like the herding tribe, were they an agrarian tribe? I mean, what was their culture based on? Yes, exactly right. I mean, they they are pastoral, so uh, uh, you know it's not to say that they never plant crops, but uh, certainly the main job of the men is to look after the uh, you know the cattle, uh, and of course. Uh, Personal wealth is is measured in how many cattle you own. So a chief, for example, will be the the main cattle owner. And it's really about grazing. So, you know, pastoral people generally on the move, it's not to say they didn't create settlements, they did, but they had to keep moving their cattle and therefore land and a lot of it was tremendously important to the Zulu and of course the other Bantu uh, tribes. And of course, I mean, the irony is that we think of this clash as between sort of the industrialized Europeans and the kind of uh, pastoralist um, Zulus. But of course, actually, the Europeans are pastoralists too. I mean, the, 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 the Dutch want land to graze their cattle every bit as much as the Zulus. So although we think of it as this sort of different levels of civilizational clash, actually, it's not. It's two groups of pastoralists who want more land to graze their cattle. Uh, which is you know driving a lot of this conflict, isn't it? Exactly right, and and of course thrown into the mix are the Brits, the British, the third of the you know the three groups who really will uh, battle for supremacy in Southern Africa at the end of the nineteenth century, and their first instinct is trade. It's it's how can we extract things out of Southern Africa uh, that we can sell basically, and, and ultimately they're really looking for resources natural resources um particularly uh, of course as we know it's going to be things like gold and diamonds but also other resources under under the soil and that determination to create a kind of political uh, uh control for the british is really presaged on the fact that if we're going to if we're going to be able to get hold of these minerals um and trade them and of course, let's not forget Southern Africa is also strategically quite important for the empire. That is, it's a it's an obvious base for ships as they're sailing around the Cape until the uh, the building of the Suez Canal. That was the main route, and it's still a route for a lot of trade uh, heading uh, towards Europe and, of course, to the further flung reaches of the empire. So there were various reasons why the, the British wanted to get hold of Southern Africa, but their determination to gain control of the hinterland, I think, uh, you have to say, it sounds a bit cynical, but you have to say, is really to do with minerals and controlling uh, both people. You need people, of course, to to get stuff out of the ground, but also to control those places where you are going to get things out of the ground. So in all three cases, it is about controlling territory. It's just that the British in particular had a slightly more, uh, you know, cynical, this is all about money and how can we how can we get this stuff uh, and how can we send it to the places where we can charge a lot more money for it? <laughs> yeah, nation of shopkeepers. Um, you mentioned uh, Shaka uh, as sort of the, in a sense, the founding genius of the Zulu nation. And I was really struck reading your book. The very first line is the Zulu kingdom lasted for just 60 years, um, which I think for a lot of listeners will come as a bit of a shock because we think of the Zulus as really... If, 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 if the man on the street or the woman on the street is sort of one African nation or people, it's probably the Zulus. You know, they're so um, iconic. Uh, and the fact that, that, that the empire is so short-lived, I think, will come as a shock to people. So um, I guess I think 
I guess the question is, um, can you just talk us through the kind of this sort of very meteoric rise from, from as you say, a, a very small group of people to suddenly this sort of empire that's able to take on the British and, and for, for a time win? I mean, Shaka's the key to the story, as we've already explained, as I've already explained. Um, he's born in 1787. He's the son of the Zulu king, uh, the then Zulu king, Senzanga Kona. I mean, it's, the pronunciations of a lot of the, uh, of the Zulu kings are, are quite tricky, it's true. But I think the important thing to note uh, at Shaka's birth in the end of the 18th century is that the Zulus exist, as I've already pointed out, uh, as, a, as a tribe but they are not that uh, significant. They are, they are part of a, a broader confederacy, the Matetwa, that are their, effectively their overlords. So the story of the rise of the Zulu kingdom, and really we're talking about the, uh, the dating of the empire from the 1820s onwards, is really Shaka's rise to power um, and what he does when he becomes king himself. Now, after his father's death in 1816, the first thing he really does is deal with his, uh, and this, there's a long tradition of this, I'm afraid, in, in uh, Zulu history, is deal with his half-brother who has been uh, pronounced king. So uh, Shaka was never intended to be king. He's illegitimate. He's not from one of the favoured wives of, the, uh, of his father. Um, but what's interesting about the overthrow of his brother is that he does it with the support of his overlord, Dinjiswayo. Now, Dinjiswayo, uh, who's effectively the, the, the uh, chief of the Matetwa, um, has brought him along as one of his sort of favoured uh, uh, military commanders. Uh, and he, this is really, a, you know, will put him in a position in the Zulu clan, and this will kind of bolster up my support. But unfortunately, it, it backfires on Dinjiswayo because Shaka is, uh, uh, and you know, will we'll be seen quite clearly, a military genius. He has adapted uh, the militarization of the Zulus and also the Matetwa uh, and, and given it a particular flavor so that young boys, when they got to um, uh, adolescence, would enter effectively military life. You know, we're, we're, we're almost going back to, to uh, Greek times. You would be militarized from a very young, young age. So you would join a, a, effectively a, a boys' regiment uh, and you would learn how to fight. Now, what Shaka also did is he introduced uh, a revolution, really, in both tactics, the way of fighting, but also the weapons they're going to use. So, yes, they had spears, they even had short stabbing spears. But what Shaka, the, 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 the complete innovation that Shaka introduced is that. You would no longer have this situation where two tribes are fighting, they're throwing spears, occasionally getting up close, but generally not. Uh, a few people are killed, and then that's the end of the battle, really. He, he introduced tactics that basically meant you surrounded your enemy. So the, you know, the famous horns of the buffalo, you have the chest, which goes up against the main enemy force. And then you have these two wings, the horns, which surround the enemy. And the reason this tactic is significant is because it means that the enemy are now trapped within, if you've executed this maneuver properly, they're now trapped in this noose, I suppose you'd call it. And this is where the second of the of the interesting um, bits of innovation comes into play, which is the use of the short stabbing spear. Uh, they had been around before, but effectively, Shaka said, you've no need for the longer spears. You can throw them at a distance, but when you close with the enemy, you just use the short stabbing spear. It sort of forces you to close with the enemy because, you know, they're, they're not properly balanced for throwing. And of course, if you get up close and personal with your enemy uh, and you've got a very effective weapon with this incredibly sharp, uh, long stabbing spear, you're going to kill a lot of the enemy. And so that was how uh, Shaka 
was able to overpower enemies, uh, kill the main opponents, and then absorb the survivors into his tribe. And within a very short period of time, he has defeated and absorbed um, what's left of the Metekwa into his empire, which then only expands. But what's interesting about this period is it's at a time when there's a lot of um, uh, movement of tribes and a lot of fighting. Uh, it's just that the Zulu are the single uh, tribe that is most successful during this period, the so-called crushing, as uh, South African historians call it. What was it that was causing the movement? Was there some kind of um, change in the climate or some kind of environmental thing? Usually, when you have these great movements of people, there is a stimulus somewhere which causes that reaction to then occur. So what was causing the great the, the great kind of confusion in, in movement within African tribes? It's fighting for resources. It's, it's uh, you know, as the Europeans are moving in, as the Boers are, are, are moving, you've also got a lot of pressure, population pressure from African tribes further to the north and also Europeans, of course, further to the north and the east. And the result of all of this is, is a, 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 a movement to try and find scarce resources. And it was linked, as you've suggested, Diana, of course, with, with climactic conditions that meant that there was famine over, over a number of years uh, and people were desperately trying to get to places where they could grow crops, uh, they could graze their cattle, uh, and they could find some kind of security. And one tribe bumped into the next tribe, bumped into the next tribe, uh, and the ultimate outcome was the loss, so they say, I mean, these are figures are just estimate, of, of you know up to a million lives during the period of the crushing, and possibly more. Uh, and the biggest uh, uh, winners, really, from this movement and the, these endless battles that are going on and fights were the Zulu, uh, and they increase enormously in size, thanks to Shaka and, of course, Shaka's descendants. Yeah, and I think, actually, at this point, it's probably worth just talking a little about the geography of where we're talking about, um, because, I think again, a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with that. So, I mean, Z- the Zulu kind of heartland, if you look at a map of South Africa, we're on sort of the um, east coast, sort of the southeast coast, um, broadly from Durban up to kind of Richards Bay, I think, um, and towards the, 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 what's now the border with Mozambique. Um, and of course, the British are coming up um, slowly from the south, so sort of from Port Elizabeth and moving that way. Um, you've got the Portuguese to the north. Um, and then, so there is a sort of squeezing, isn't there? Um, and, and as people are being sort of pushed pushed around. Yeah, the Zulus are effectively being hemmed in by the Europeans to the north and the south and also the Boers to the west. So, and and what, what effectively starts the Zulu wars, uh, certainly the Anglo-Zulu war, is is competition for uh, the, the the territory, really. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of border dispute, ultimately, that's going to be used as the trigger. Um, of course, you know, as I've already suggested, the British have other other intentions, and their overall intention uh, ultimately is to gain complete overlordship of Southern Africa. They they want a confederation of Southern Africa, and they don't, uh, or at least that they see certain uh, tribes within that as potential threats. And the Zulu is the biggest obvious threat to the security and the and the kind of settled overlordship of the British in Southern Africa. So the intention is to get a confederation, and the, and the calculation, frankly. Uh, rather ruthlessly, is that they don't think that this is going to be possible while the Zulu Empire still exists. Why is it not possible in the British mind to negotiate with whoever is in charge of the Zulus? In the way that India, for example, 
the, the system of government, both on the East India Company and under Britain, is, is in many ways extremely clever and astute in that they don't actually occupy vast swathes of India. They simply co-opt the people who control those swathes and make it worth their while to sort of bow the knee to the Queen Victoria or whoever. What is it about the Zulu or about Af Is it just their attitude towards Africans? They maybe not think that Africans can be negotiated with or can you can make those deals with them? I mean, what stops them coming to an arrangement? Or maybe the Zulus just would not conceive of such a thing. I don't think it is that different, actually. Um, yes, there is a, a, a slight racist element. They they would have seen the the uh, Indians as having a you know much longer and richer civilization, shall we? Uh, you could put it than some of the African tribes. But I don't think it's that different, actually, because uh, the the history of the rise of the East India Company, which of course after the Indian Mutiny uh, then effectively becomes the British Raj, is all about dealing with military threats. If if they are extant, so to speak. So th there are a number of wars fought against a very powerful um, Indian opponents, uh, like the Maratha uh, Confederacy, for example. And only when they're defeated and they effectively bow the knee to the British and they allow a resident to be placed on their territory and they really come under, under overlordship, you know, their foreign policy is controlled by the British. There's a kind of implicit uh, acceptance that in a security sense that the British are really going to be an overall charger, you can run your affairs within your borders. And I think if the Zulus had allowed that, um, it's possible that they wouldn't have had to go to war. But I, I think the sequence of events that led up to the, the outbreak of the Anglo-Zulu War in 1879 is very interesting because there was a uh, an ultimatum uh, put to the Zulu the then king, the successor of Shaka, or a few generations later, Chechwaya, which is um, along the sort of lines I've spoken about. There'll be a British resident in, in Zululand, uh, but, and here was the real kicker, which he could not accept, mainly because the militarization of Zulu society was so much more pronounced than probably anywhere in India that I've already mentioned. Um, was the demilitarization of the of the Zulu army, and that that really struck at the heart of how society worked in Zululand, and therefore was never going to be uh, acceptable. So, I it, it's it's hard to believe that the Zulus, frankly, would have given in without a fight, and of course they did not, uh, as we know. Also, because I think in in, Zulu, in the Zulu polity of this time, the army and the effectively the civil service, the the, the, the um, effectively the same, aren't they? So the the state is the army, and actually they're not necessarily fighting all the time. They spend a lot of what the regiments do is basically public works. Um, you know, they, they they build for the for the king. They they look after the king's cattle. They um they're sort of the royal workforce as, as well uh, in sort of every domain. So presumably, if you disband the army, then the king effectively has no state apparatus. Yes, and I don't think there was... Well, I mean, you know, there were certain characters who knew very well how the uh, how Zulu society worked. And, you know, one of them, no doubt, we'll be discussing in a moment, uh, Theophilus Shepston, who, you know, was uh, Secretary for Native Affairs uh, in Natal for many years and knew exactly how... 
the Zulu system worked. Uh, but to him, it posed a mortal threat. He didn't believe you could unravel the military aspect and just have them as civil servants, so to speak. And, and he was possibly right. I mean, one of the great prides and the legacies of, of Shaka was this military prowess. Yes, you're right. They're not fighting all the time, certainly not after the creation of the Zulu Empire, when most, of course, of the chief fights in the 1820s, 1830s, they're still fighting the, the Boers um, uh, too. But after that period, they, they've, they've really effectively won. Uh, and the only enemies really that they are likely to take on at that point, the only serious enemies are European. And I think there was a calculation by Shepston and others that it was going to be very difficult to dismantle the, you know, the, this link between civil society and the military. So, um, so, we, so we've talked about Shaka. Shaka dies in eighteen twenty-eight. He's succeeded by two of his his half brothers in succession: uh, first in Ghana and then Mpande. Uh, Mpande rules fairly peaceably, I think, until eighteen seventy-two, when he's succeeded by his son Chechweo. Um, at this point, sort of, en- or, or in the eighteen seventies, enter two characters who become very crucial. One is, but uh, both with wonderful Dickensian names. One of them is Sabatel Freer, uh, and one of them is Theophilus Shepstone. So, um, t- tell us about these guys. <laughs> yeah, great names, aren't they? I mean, I'll start with Theophilus Shepstone first because he's really the local guy. I mean, he's gone out to South Africa uh, as an infant, and therefore has effectively grown up. All, all his cultural influences are South African. He has been for many years the Commissioner for Native Affairs uh, for the Natal government, one of the British colonies. There are two crown colonies at that time, uh, Cape Cape Colony and Natal. And of course, Natal being the closest to Zululand, he has most connection with and most understanding of the Zulus and the potential threat that they pose. And Shepston, as the years gone by, despite having attended Chechwayo's coronation, is increasingly alarm among amongst the uh, the, the, the ruling class in Southern Africa, that is the British ruling class, that the uh, the Zulus are going to be a problem sooner or later and they need to be dealt with. Uh, there is going to be a serious danger of them invading Natal. There's always this kind of invasion fear that people like Shepston are whipping up uh, and that sooner or later there needs to be a reckoning with the Zulu nation. He doesn't believe they can any, ever going to be forced um, to uh, disengage from their warlike uh, nature uh, and therefore feels that sooner or later a a war of aggression is going to have to be fought against them. Now, his partner in crime in terms of the lead up to the uh, Anglo-Zulu war is Sir Bartle Frere, who's a uh, British proconsul who's really made his name in India. But by 1877, he's given the job of uh, uh, governor of Cape Colony, but also the commissioner for Southern Africa, which means he has a sort of overarching look at affairs in Southern Africa. But he's also been given a specific task, which is to confederate Southern Africa. And that is to bring into line uh, the British colonies, the um, the states that are then being run by the Boers, um, that is Orange Free State, uh, and also the Transvaal. And then lastly, these African kingdoms, the biggest of which and the most dangerous of which in terms of its military prowess is, is Zululand. Uh, and it's he becomes convinced, partly by Shepston and also um, by the uh, commander-in-chief of British forces in India at that time, the man who will lead the advance into Zululand, Lord Chelmsford. All three of them really come to the conclusion that the only way to 
solve the problem of the ongoing threat from Zululand and therefore enable all the all these uh, disparate states to be confederated is if they defeat the Zulus. They either force the Zulus to demilitarize, they don't believe they'll do that. So they're going to give them an ultimatum, which is effectively uh, going to be a casus belli. The Zulus will reject it and there, there will be a war, a bloody war, but a short war in which the Zulus are roundly defeated problem over. And by defeating the Zulus, they hope that this will bring the Boers into line because the Boers have had a long uh, and bloody history against the Zulus too. There's been a lot of border disputes between the two countries. And this is going to solve that problem if the British take over Zululand. So that really, in a nutshell, is the is the casus belli for the Zulu war. And you can see that there's a lot of cynicism involved because the real question is, would the Zulus in their current state, even their sort of militaristic society, have posed a genuine threat to uh, the white settlers on either side of them. Not necessarily. It might have been a problem down the line, but it certainly wasn't a problem in 1879. It wasn't an existential issue. This was a war very much of aggression. And in fact, um, Chechweo seems in the 1870s really to be bending over backwards to not start a war. So he's always asking sort of boundary commissions uh, to sort of come um and very much there's this sort of stretch of, of land isn't there on the frontier of the buffalo river where where the boers keep on kind of encroaching encroaching onto what i think by rights is zulu land um and and he's very much not rising to provocation um and uh it's certainly my reading of the history is that it's actually shepstone and freer and, and then chelmsford who really um almost won't take yes for an answer so that they have this boundary commission and the commissioners basically report back in favor of the Zulus. Um, and so they have to ignore that. Yes, that's absolutely right. There, there, there are um, uh, obvious signs from the Zulus, I think very sensibly realizing that they're not going to be able to take on and defeat the British Empire. And therefore, you need to come to some kind of terms with them. And they were prepared to concede a bit of ground. Uh, and, and, and you're also right that the boundary commission uh, which was set up in the hope that the result would would be something the Zulus couldn't accept and the Boers couldn't accept, actually ruled in favour of the Zulus. I mean, the Boers weren't very happy, but the consequence of all of that is that it was pretty clear Chechwayo did not want a war. That was not the information, by the way, that was getting back to the British government uh, in England, which didn't want a war either, interesting enough. They were they were sending out messages to Freire saying, look, we, we've got, we're embroiled in Afghanistan at this point. The last thing we want is a war in Southern Africa. But those three key players, Chelmsford, Frere and Shepston, cooked up the war between themselves because they felt the job they'd been given, which is in the end to unite Southern Africa, wasn't possible why Zululand uh, still existed. That was a judgment call. They may have been right in that, but it was pretty ruthless. And isn't it right that they actually, they're, they're so duplicitous that they actually send the dispatches back to London to say, hey, we're going to start a war. Um, but they time them so that the war will have started by the time that it actually reaches London, pretty almost. Yeah, there's a six-week um, uh, time gap between getting information from Southern Africa to to the United Kingdom, and they uh, there's been a long tradition of this. To be to be fair, in British military history, that you would have a uh, a proconsul or a general on the frontiers taking advantage of the lack of communication. It happened many times in India, but but this was absolutely a sort of cynical decision by them because they knew that by the time that they had effectively announced that there was going to be a war, it would be too late for the government in Britain to do anything about it. What if we just compare the kind of the people at a ground level, 
the people who are going to go to war. So you've got your British your British Army Tommy, presumably in those days still in heavy red woolen coats in the in the middle of Southern Africa, armed with, I guess, well, you'll tell us what the latest military technology is, against the Zulu warrior, who's probably his individually greatly his superior athletically in terms of knowing territory at his particular form of fighting how what are we matching up in other words what are the, what are the two sides kind of consisting of in terms of the people and the equipment available to them well in military technology terms as i uh, hinted at the at the beginning of this discussion there is no comparison really there's a huge advantage on the the side of the british and the and the um uh, the settlers the white settlers in southern africa in terms of their weaponry, they have uh, breech-loading weapons, Martini Henry. It had only recently been introduced a few years before. It was a little bit prone to jamming. It had a few uh, a few drawbacks, but it was an incredibly powerful, effective weapon uh, that could be l- loaded by a trained infantrymen very quickly. It was single shot, so there was no magazine, but you could load it relatively rapidly uh, and it was devastatingly effective at anything under 200 yards away. And certainly against uh, uh, an African warrior charging you, uh, you had plenty of time to take him in your sights and bring him down. Uh, but that wasn't all. The, I mean, that's the main weapon that the, the white settlers and the and the British uh, soldiers had. But but of course, they had many other effective weapons like the Gatling gun, the early machine gun, which had just been introduced. And this was the, I, if I think, I think I get this right, it's either Afghanistan or the Zulu War. It's the first time this has ever been used in combat. So it's brand new. Again, it's uh, slightly prone to stoppages. It's not quite as effective. It's not nowhere near as good as the Maxim gun, which is the machine gun that's really going to take over from the Gatling gun uh, a few years later. It's relatively rudimentary, but still with an extraordinary high rate of fire, I think something like 600 shots a minute. Um, and, you know, would have seemed like a, you know, a weapon from Mars, frankly, to, to any of the Africans fighting. And the British uh, and the white settlers also had artillery, uh, and you could use that uh, with shell fire uh, at a great distance. Again, you know, not just the the psychological effect, but but the uh, the, uh, the literal effect of, of shrapnel tearing through mass ranks of warriors. So you've got these three elements really, uh, and also rockets. They had the uh, um, the sort of legacy of the rockets they were using at Waterloo. Actually, not very accurate. You kind of lit them, and it was like a big explosive that used to fire off on a on a stick. But again, it had tremendous uh, shock value. The, the, the combination of these three weapons on, on the one hand, and when you compare them to what the Zulus are armed with, which is the stabbing spear, which I mentioned, which has hardly changed from Shaka's time, you've got to get up close and personal. So trained infantrymen in a rank firing at a distance can stop an awful lot of Zulus before they get close to them, which, of course, is exactly what happens at Rourke's Drift. Um, what else do the Zulus have? Well, they have throwing spears, which, generally speaking, a little bit like the uh, Romans, uh, if we go back all the way to the use of the gladius and the and the pilum. I mean, it's interesting. I've often speculated, you know, did the Zulus or did Shaka ever, you know, understand anything about ancient warfare? Because there are great similarities. Uh, also, the use of shields as well. So those three basic weapons were the, were the basic weapons of a, of a Roman infantryman. But they all are dependent on you closing with your enemy. Uh, you know, the javelin you use, but just to disrupt the formation as you're getting close you can see that there's a tremendous advantage. So the question is, did the Zulus have any firearms? Uh, The answer is yes. 
they had firearms because they were trading with the Portuguese in particular for a number of years prior to the outbreak of the Anglo-Zulu War, but they had pretty rudimentary firearms. They tended to be um, muzzle-loading uh, muskets, nowhere near as effective as uh, as these breech-loading weapons the British infantrymen had. And also they hadn't really developed a tactic to use them, so they tended to fire them once and then drop them and, you know, as I say, close in for the kill. Interestingly enough, after Isanwana, maybe I'm jumping too far ahead, they picked up a lot of the Martini Henrys, which, uh, of course, you know, the infantrymen uh, had been carrying and they killed all the infantrymen. So they picked up the Martini Henrys and they did use them to some effect to create harassing fire at Rourke's Drift. And there's no question that at least a couple of the uh, dead at Rourke's Drift were killed by long range uh, rifle fire. So the Zulus could have adapted uh, and certainly with the right kits, they were capable of uh, adapting. But the battles in the early stages of, of uh, the Anglo-Zulu War were very one-sided in the sense that the tactics I've already outlined were pretty much the ones that were going to be used. And it's interesting that Chelmsford, the British commander, uh, sets his tactics at Islamwana to absolutely keep the Zulus at a distance. That's what it's, uh, that, that was the process with which he was convinced he could win almost any engagement against the Zulus. I think uh, the other thing I find interesting about the way the Zulus uh, used uh, rifles initially is, and this is, I think, uh, at the Battle of Blood River, so that's 1838, so this is before when we're talking about, but they actually fire them in the air because they're so used to the arcing trajectory of a spear through the air that they assume that the bullet will take the same trajectory. And so they end up firing over the defenders' heads. Um, presumably by 1879, they've, they've actually... Um, you know, got beyond that. But uh, I think all through, because when the first white traders come to Shaka's court, what they, and then the other kings, what they desperately want is gunpowder, isn't it? They want gunpowder and they want rifles. And the the British and the, and the Portuguese are mostly not going to give it to them. But there's all these desperate sort of pleas saying, give us guns, give us, give us gunpowder. And generally speaking, the guns they're given, as I've, uh, I've already mentioned, are, you know, are three, four, five uh, generations older than the, the, the ones that European armies would have been using at that time. And they, they sort of feel, well, we're not going to give them any, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to turn them into an even more formidable force than they are by by supplying them with weapons. Having said that, of course, some most of the people they're doing deals with are pretty unscrupulous traders who <laughs> would have would have given them what they wanted. Yeah. But the latest kit, uh, undoubtedly, they never got their hands on. And they certainly never used, they never learned to use weapons uh, in the same way that the Europeans did, possibly because they would have considered it to be unmanly, frankly, to have fired at a distance and, and not closed as they'd always been trained. I was going to ask you about that. This kind of ironic with the Zulus coming up against the Victorian Empire and its most, you know, it's not cricket era. Actually, themselves thought it just wasn't quite fair play to, to you know, that a man got up close and personal. He didn't. He didn't just hide away and fire a bullet. Is that? I mean, I've heard that. Is that? Is there any accuracy to that? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, the, the, one of the issues when you're writing about the the, the story of the Zulus, the Anglo-Zulu War, is uh, sources from the Zulu side, and uh, they are pretty scanty. Um, they tended to ha- come after the end of the war when some of the Zulus who'd been defeated were then being um, uh, questioned, interrogated. Um, same problem, interesting enough, um, with India getting some of the sources from the Indian mutiny. I mean, rebels who were captured and were then interrogated, you know, to some extent tell their interlocutors uh, what they want to hear. So it's always difficult to, to really get to grips with the proper motivation of, of, 
of the Zulus and why they didn't develop their tactics. But but I think, you know, one thing you can say for sure is that the tactics have been very effective up till then. And it was into, you know, physical courage on the battlefield unquestionably was woven into, into Zulu society. Um, and what Shaka had done is he'd, he'd moved uh, the fighting of Zulu, of African tribes on from this idea where it was almost done at arm's length as a demonstration. And he showed how effective that could be. If you could, you know, wipe out the manpower of your enemy, you could subsume his whole tribe and that underpinned the expansion of the Zulu empire. The other detail I love about the, um, uh, the, the Zulu kind of uh, weaponry is that the short stabbing spear, I think the Zulu word for it, I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's called something like the Ikwa. Ikwa. Uh, and yeah. the name, I think, is supposed to be the sound that it makes as like the sort of sound as it, as you pull it out of the guts of your opponent having stabbed him. Um, so it's very much a weapon that even in its naming is is all about, as you say, up close and personal. Yes, that's right. And, and uh, you know, you get you get an extra factor, of course, with this type of warfare. And that's the shock value when uh, people come on the scene. Uh, yeah, Wilbur gives us this incredibly vivid and gruesome description of uh, the battlefield in When the Lion Feeds, uh, when Sean Courtney uh, comes across the scene at Islandwala in the aftermath of the battle. Yes. Uh, but that is something I think we're going to have to save for the next episode. Uh, when Diana and I will be fortunate enough to be joined once again by Professor Saul David. Thanks, guys. Uh, to discuss the two most famous and evocative battles of the Anglo-Zulu War, Isandlwana and Rockstrift. But for now, we're going to leave it. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you very much, Tom. And I hope you enjoyed it very much. It's goodbye from us. Smith's show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay.